netcasting from Chicago, Los Angeles, and Sydney. You're listening to this week's FX Podcast from FXGuide.com. Hi, and welcome to the FX Podcast. I'm John Montgomery. Our podcast this week is actually a virtual roundtable of sorts, taking a look at the work ILM did for Black Panther Wakanda Forever. Our guests for this episode of the FX Podcast are Craig Hammock, who's the visual effects supervisor, Matt Cowie, the animation supervisor, and David Seeger, who's visual effects supervisor. Now, ILM did all the work on Wakanda itself, and that's what the guys will be talking about during their discussion. So let's go ahead and join that now with Mike and his three guests. Thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. And uh, Craig, and certainly Matt as well, you guys are revisiting Wakanda, aren't you? I mean, this is the second time that you've uh, basically built Wakanda. Yeah, we were responsible for for building the asset of the city and doing all the city shots in the first movie, So, um, which was quite an undertaking back then, um, which is, what, some four years ago, six years ago? I don't even remember. But um, yeah, so this was uh, a matter of... of reliving some of that bringing it back online and um trying to update it so that it could survive these uh these flood scenes and which basically to us means that it 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 becomes uh, a task of of getting everything uh watertight and pushed into the effects world which for us in this case is houdini um yeah it must be a massively world. different build to build something when you know it's going to be needing for fluid sims and and that kind of destruction sequence than just kind of environment work i presume yes yeah absolutely yeah it's a it's a huge undertaking and and the requirements you know ramp up off the scale um for what it needs to do and just the the idea that it needs to pass through so many departments also um you know our our environments tend to live in in our generalist world um where where they're in past years it could stay in 3ds max for the most part and uh and be very nimble very light um but you know like i say once we get into the effects world everything has to be kind of buttoned up and you know survive the the algorithms of of pressure you know uh pressure solves and everything so that kind of necessitates you know, a rebuild of the the foundations that need to go into the, the flood. You know, in this case, I mean, we were somewhat fortunate in that um, I believe almost all the scenes that required street flooding um, were in new districts. So they were, they were new bits of the city built uh, specifically for those scenes and then uh, integrated into the larger city build uh, from the first movie. Well, I'll look back on that a bit more in a second, but Matt, I wanted to ask you, what are the sort of different animation challenges that happen? And I'm guessing there was a bunch more interesting character work that would have happened because of the the plot line this time around, but how was it for you? Yeah, it was a, a great challenge. You know, Namor is a, a new superhero we haven't seen in the MCU on film. So trying to establish what that, that looks like, what someone who has ankle wings flying above water um, you know, we had to essentially solve that. So we've seen a lot of superheroes in the past flying. Um, and one thing Ryan Cooler, our director, didn't didn't really want his Namor to have unlimited flight um, potential, essentially. So anytime he was above water, he had to kind of obey the physics of real world. Um, the biggest challenge was just how does how does Namor move above water? You know, with with his thrust 
thrust vector pointed down. Um, and that's something we had to look for uh, reference for that in the real world. And you can find that in essentially helicopters, the way their thrust ve vector is pointed down. Um, and there's flyboarding essentially when, you know, you can, you can hover above water and they pipe, um, you know, the water through the bottom of your feet. And it's like, you, you have to, we had to figure out fundamentally what the challenge for that was. Um, uh, and then, so one thing we did early on, we brought in a helicopter geometry into Maya. We had a controller input and we could essentially just like a uh, real time with a, you know, uh, a video game, you can maneuver a helicopter within Maya. We then attached a Namor model to that just to sit back and see what that looks like if Namor had the same physics uh, of a simulated hel helicopter. And what we learned is as Namor kind of would have to maneuver left and right, he would have to lean into every turn. You know, if he's having to go forward, he had, he'd have to lean because his, and put his feet back because his thrust vector was behind him. Um, and conversely, to slow down, he's got to kick his feet out in front of him as, as well, much like an ice skater when they have to break. Um, so once we kind of, had an understanding fundamentally of that, we can then build upon that through, you know, we would start with that and then build upon actions, evading, fighting and all that. But um, yeah, that was probably the biggest challenge, just how does he traverse around the world? And David, you were joining the team, obviously you're an ILM alumni, but uh, you were joining this Wakanda team. I think you were like, what, last on the Eternals, am I right on that? But you weren't on the um, previous Black Panther? Last Marvel was Eternals. I had right. finished uh, Andor. Uh, just before okay. joining under this one. Which, by the yeah. way, is spectacular. Yeah, we're all uh, very pleased with the results. Yeah, that's that's been uh, that's been wonderful. But uh, yeah, and and just to toss it out there, Mike, like I, I definitely, um, uh, I came in late on the show, you know, just to really help push through the mountain of work. You know, uh, Craig and Matt and the and an amazing team of department supervisors and leads and everyone had had a lot of stuff built and ready to go so i i, I kind of came in and just really let craig focus on kind of the big water sequence battle and i kind of took the rest the miscellaneous other wakanda scenes and what have you so just to in terms of the environments or the visual effects uh, in just, the environments uh, throughout i mean i had effects and what have you it's just that you know we typically work very sequentially right like we think because sequences have different like footprints of characters environments you know uh, how the plates were shot what have you so basically any anything outside of that that i guess it was technically in the second act the the big battle in in wakanda uh, anything outside of that that was still within the golden city and and like the river scene that craig mentioned was mine as well so like it basically uh yeah the, the remainder <laughs> some, some some fun stuff like oh definitely some fun stuff the dream sequences yeah. you know when uh when shuri kind of goes to the um you know the other side the spirit realm you know kind of a thing so uh there, there's some good stuff in there as well but yeah and and arguably you know i would say the most one of the most important scenes of the the funeral procession the funeral yeah i ended up with a lot of the emotional scenes like the <laughs> when ramanda is like talking down um okoye in the throne room which is just an amazing performance uh from her and the the throne room or the the funeral at the beginning and the flashback so yeah there's there plenty of emotion in those scenes but uh they're uh not a great deal of like uh namor and what have you but uh good stuff nonetheless yeah and i think we'd all agree the acting is spectacularly good and yeah. and of course the film is in the shadow of uh chadwick um but if i could just rather than focus on the actual actors for a second i i wanted to think about how that cast are kind of uh 
a palette change on the city because I know it's the goal of the city, but it did feel like that the city looked different in how it was represented, which of course was underscoring the emotional subtext of what was going on in the film. So I mean that in a positive way, but I don't know if you could, you could comment on that, Craig, but it, you know, you had to be the same city, but it wasn't the same time and the same emotional kind of uh, subtext. Yeah, no, it was a, it was a real uh, emphasis for, for Ryan and, and for Autumn, you know, when she was uh, uh, the cinematographer, when she was um, lighting on set and it, it needed to have a, uh, a somber, you know, almost kind of brooding um, tone to it that, you know, the first movie was, was, you know, so enlightened and, and like, you know, uh, almost joyous in, in the city scenes um, that it was a real, uh, like I say, a real emphasis to try to make this something different and something that kind of fit. Um, I, I believe the, the idea was to fit Shuri's mood more than anything. Um, so everything needed to be brought down in, in saturation in in kind of, uh, contrast and, uh, it became this, this exercise and we went through, you know, a couple rounds, but, um, it became this exercise of getting to a, a, a slightly cooler, uh, in temp uh, color temperature and, and very kind of backlit, uh, feel almost in every direction. Right. So it, it became a dramatic lighting scene, no matter what you 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 turn to. Um, and I mentioned the yeah. lighting design is set by the cinematographer, but I was wondering how much in any individual shots you sort of had so much digital work that a lot of that had to be interpreted by your team or how much was it set extension where you were picking up on the lighting cues that was already in the existing sets? Uh, it, was, it was a it was a mixture. Mostly, you know, there were there were so many um either all cg shots or shots where we had to replace you know enough of the set um that uh it was it was under our control but still you know very strongly driven by ryan and autumn had a had a um you know comments in post that uh you know she was still driving you know looks in post which was which was amazing um you know to keep and, that kind of consistency through and technically it was anamorphic right from the yes photography yeah. yeah yes yeah it was anamorphic and heavily detuned lenses right yeah. so like heavy characteristics uh everywhere um, yeah which, i mean you, you know, want that visual authenticity don't you you do you do and it's an interesting um it's an interesting kind of texture and flavor that it puts on to the visuals um that is a nice kind of uh, palette to to work within it really makes things difficult uh on the cg side to keep the trackers don't like it no not at all and yep. and even you know once you start judging shots and and layering on these you know these uh um, lens characteristics you know there's there are are things that um you don't really realize come into focus or go way out of focus you know, until you get to the comp stage. And so, you know, you're building these kind of end to end, you know, corner to corner, beautiful images uh, that that work. Um, and then you get them into into comp. And all this lens characteristic stuff gets put onto it. And 
all of a sudden, like the focus of the shot shifts slightly because things that you you were seeing, um, you know, either get kind of vignetted or like the 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 focus fall off, the drastic focus fall off of them kind of I'm, makes everything kind of drift apart and, and it gets slightly dreamy. I mean, obviously you're going to do lens curvature and a bunch of things in presumably nuke or whatever in the comp stage, but were you trying to get the defocus stuff happening in the comp stage? Because obviously you could be faithfully reproducing that uh, bokeh in the actual CG render, or were you had you sort of engineered it such that you could dial it in in, in comp? Yeah, that was all that was all dialed in comp. Yeah. yeah. The the complexity of this one, it would have terrified me to try to do that in 3D. Um, yeah. the the lenses and the the host of lenses and to be honest, like I don't know that I've seen anything like it in my career as far as like just the subtleties of like the bokeh as they got near the edge of frame or the different depths and the asymmetry to them and like just the you know it was uh fairly involved and worked heavily with uh it was weta right craig the yeah. team mm -hmm. in weta that that worked heavily with jeff on the client side from day one trying to recreate they shot very extensive like more so than our normal like lens grids like they they shot the most extensive thing i've ever seen as far as like trying to capture these these lenses so that they could program that back into a nuke setup that then was shared with all of the vendors because uh, that's Weta. the thing is that like with an anamorphic does weird things at different um f-stops so it's not even as if you're talking about like the breathing and the skewing and stuff can be really pretty totally. funky down at uh, wide open and um yeah so so in terms of sort of pulling all that together that sounds like it's pretty comprehensive and i could say i think there was some gorgeous lighting like the quality of light you managed to get in what had to be in CG shots was remarkable because there was some really nice close-up lighting work that clearly had been done by the cinematographer. So matching those two couldn't have been easy. But do you mind if I ask what technical renderer you're actually using at the uh, end point of this? Uh, it's a combination. Um, you know, some of the wide city stuff and even the water and effects, uh, we, we went um, – through V-Ray um, for this. And it was actually the first time, I believe it was the first time we have pushed our effects work into V-Ray. And it was specifically so that it would uh, meld with the city render. Um, and we could we could push it all into, you know, a single renderer and, and under a single kind of, um, you know, uh, discipline to, to get the kind of true reflection, refraction, wet, you know, uh, wet map lookup. Uh, so anyway, so that's that's the consistency of effects work and the city, and then our character work and and um, you know some of the ships and assets and stuff like that goes through Renderman. So David, if I can hit you for a second, because one of the things that I'm fascinated by, I, I mean, it works. Don't get me wrong; I think it totally works. But occasionally, I'm like sitting there thinking to myself, somebody had to make a decision here about. Uh, how can I put this? Using cinematic techniques to tell the story, and the, the one that struck me first, uh, which was <clears throat> the uh, the uh, Namor reveal out of the water mm. at the uh, at the sort of edge of, um, I guess it's a lake or, or the, the ocean, river, but yeah. yeah, the river. Yeah. So the thing about that is, and it happens again <laughs> later in, in for several other characters, is you don't want them like really soggy for that long. Like if I got out of, or any other actor got out of water, they'd stay wet for quite a long time. Mm. It doesn't actually work necessarily. Now, of course, cinema being cinema, right? Like we have lights to make people look good. But like how hard was it to work out how wet 
to keep characters. And also that poses a pretty serious technical problem with lots of water dripping off them and keeping them with that kind of stuff happening. Yeah, I mean, to, to be honest, in a lot of those sequences, we the plates drove that. Um, they um, That shot, the, the hero shot, which is really the first reveal, you see Namor like silhouetted in the attack on the boat earlier, but that rising out of the water is really his first his first reveal that they they shot that you know a good portion of that practically with raising him out of the water and moving him and obviously we had to replace portions of him and 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 do some work to that but really we were a slave to you know what happened to him coming coming out of um the water practically we did enhance a bit there was a call for just wanting a little bit more water dripping off you know which i think was just more of a a style choice of wanting to to feel that a little more, but then like all the stuff, like once they're on the shore or, or even I would say during the battle, like, you know, like you were always intercutting between plates of the, the performers. So that really ended up driving, driving a lot of that. But, you know, we had, we had looked at versions for wet and dry, you know, that we could uh, interchange uh, as needed, but uh, yeah, really just, you know, much like shot lighting or anything like that, we were slave to the photography. And Matt, did you find that having the water there was something that, you know, you needed to sim to look accurate or was it a really good animation tool to help you in the way that secondary motion on, you know, props can just help tell a story? Yeah, essentially we, we just used a, a grid. Um, you know, that was our, our reference point. Um, we didn't bring in any simulation tools to help us, you know, understand the speed at which he could be affected by the water or, or you know, any of that. So, um, yeah, we just let the effects department kind of take over once we finished the atom. So it didn't really uh, affect our workflow too much, actually. Because I was wondering, because I could obviously you can effectively use it as another part of the sort of, you know, the ability to tell whatever story it is that that shot's trying to tell. Um, and also he's moving very quickly in some scenes and yeah. that's valid in a Marvel film. But like, again, that's walking that line, isn't it? Because there must've been points where, you know, you're sort of like keeping the idea of physics, but like to use your helicopter analogy, like he could effectively skip between points in the middle of battles at fairly high velocities. Yeah, we did. I mean, we we tried to, you know, uh, contain it to a certain speed. Like we didn't really want it to go any faster than maybe uh, 150 miles an hour. It really was dependent on the shot de design. Um, so, uh, yeah, if, if we went any faster than that, it would it was would start to break, essentially. So, you know, if Namor wanted to gain some more speed, there's actually one shot where he has to grab onto a dragonflyer and like much like a parkour athlete would do, he would use that to to get himself some more uh, momentum or something like that so we would have to navigate and use what he can around the environment to, to help him maintain that momentum and speed and stuff like that but yeah we we definitely were concerned about this the speed in general to keep things as realistic as possible and in that middle fight sequence which is which is great how much of that generally speak well i guess my approach would my question would be how much were you trying to keep the actor's face or his head or his whole body and like how much was it like we did full scans of the and did a CG uh, takeover. I mean, I think there were only a couple of takeovers. We went CG mostly with all of them. I mean, just due to the the nature of the the shot design. Um, you know, what's great is that we had the face. Uh, you know, the photography there of his face that we can use as reference. But I would we definitely used relied heavily on CG anymore. Yeah. So, what was the actor providing you with? Was he doing stuff? in a suit with a HMC or was he uh, on rigs or wires or was it just like he was providing the voice or the 
intent of the character? Uh, we got scans for his his face, um, which we we can then use the performance from the photography and put that back onto our, our CG model. So that was one thing. There was a lot of um, they did a lot of underwater uh, like reference footage, and there was some wire work they did as well. So it, you know sometimes they would shoot something, he'd be on wires. And uh, if we felt like that wasn't really holding up, uh, you know, physics wise, if it wasn't really feeling accurate, we would replace it. But we could always go back to the photography and see what Tennis was, was doing just and we can kind of cherry pick what we wanted from the, that photography. And is that still the sort of normal ILM pipeline that we've come to know and love with uh, in terms of scanning and stuff? Or was there anything that you were doing there differently? Like light stage um, and... Yeah, I don't. Th- I think it was pretty generic Medusa Medusa scans. Yeah, we didn't do a full fleshed out facial, um, I guess, fax system. It was b- because he didn't he wasn't required to do uh, phonem and speaking and all that. So just kind of base expressions is, is something we rolled into our our rig. Yeah, and it's fair yeah, to say, was, I think, was, right, Matt, that most of the medium like close ups were the actor. Like oh, it was sure. the wider shots that went all CG. So even when he's flying That's around right. and what have you, when you went kind of like tight into him to like look and see things, those were that was that was him. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Did and, you have any? Mike, it was it was uh, it was Dorothy and Medusa was right. was the capture. And did you find it easy to get those skin tones to work, given that you had the combination of both the? I mean, it was obviously CG to, to live action in terms of his skin tones, but then you're in those particular lighting setups with those particular. Uh, you know, action sequences, or did you settle into that look pretty quickly? Yeah, no, I think. Um, well, we had we had a pretty rock star uh, um, asset crew on this, um, so his asset was and look dev was very solid, um, and it, he he kind of just dropped into the scenes pretty naturally. Um, you know, his skin tone was a, a real focus for Ryan. And real concern for Ryan um, that it it stayed true to it. Um, so we, you know, we put quite a bit of work into uh, seeing it in different environments and making sure that it was, you know, uh, stable. Um, and then in comp, paying attention to what the different kind of uh, shifts in 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 lighting um, did to it to countercorrect out of it, but. Yeah, it, it was it was pretty seamless once we got the asset. And we were the main house that then shared that asset with the other facilities uh, for them to ingest uh, it's, on Namor specifically. It's great to have concept art of somebody that has propulsion by their ankles, but it's another thing to see that kind of in a plate where you're going for this authenticity of the visuals. I mean, it's a... Let's face it, it's a hard ask, right? Like, I mean, if you're just sort of thinking about aerodynamics, which I wasn't in the movie, but now I am. <laughs> like, you know, it's like they're not very big wings is what I'm saying. Uh, was there much <laughs> experimentation to try and sell that? Because I imagine you can, you know, up the frequency that they're moving at so fast as to imply more thrust, but then you don't even make out what's moving because they're kind of a total blur. I don't know, Matt, was that an easy, or is it, you know, the director have a really clear idea on, where you he wanted to bet to be and you just landed there pretty quickly uh, yeah. there are some cases in which we tried to go slower and faster and it really came down to i mean maybe craig can speak to this the motion blur right like we would set a certain speed which made sense to us but then when it would go through the render 
it might get too blurred. You couldn't really make out the shape and the overlap and stuff like that. So we ended up targeting something closer to like a hummingbird speed just because it made sense. You know, the wings are small, so they kind of have to flap faster to generate the lift to support this, this man who's maybe 160 pounds or 70 pounds. So we went on the faster side, um, generally matching kind of the hummingbird reference. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was, it, we, in the render side of things, we, uh, we tended to render all the shots with 180 degree shutter and 90 degree shutter and then mix between, you know, in the, in the comp when we needed to, you know, see more definition. And it was, it was something that we consciously tried to do to try to keep shape, uh, to the wings, you know, even through the motion blur, um, and, and some, some sense of kind of textural detail there so that it becomes a little more, you know, a little more um, kind of an illustrative flavor in that, you know, there are moments where you can work, you can, you can make out feathers, you know, it's kind of the key pose um, idea. I've got to say like the, one of the startlingly brilliant aspects of this film was the production design in the costumes, right? Like I mean, they're just spectacular, but I'm wondering, did you have to recreate a lot of those costumes because you wanted wet versions of them or for, because of characters having to obviously have bits replaced or whatever because of stunt or wires or something. And if so, was that a challenge? Cause I mean, they just really were intricate and gorgeous. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we did, um, the short answer is yes. Like uh, we we ended up um, needing to have digital doubles um, for most of the characters and wet versions, um, you know. But the 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 costumes themselves and the nature of the costumes didn't lend themselves to a heavy wet look, right? Like even even a wet look for the, that material was you know a little subtle. Um, you know, the one thing that uh, I think is worth noting is, is, you know, Namor's costume, you know, there was a, a design change um, to his belt and to his shorts um, that happened, you know, uh, it was starting to be explored during photography, but it, it was basically landed on in post. And so every live action shot of, of Tanosh, um, we have to replace his, his belt and his his shorts and we we're already putting his wings on his ankles so we ended up doing basically a full you know waist down replacement i remember there was a shot in black panther where uh Ramonda, the, the queen the mother has mm -hmm. a headpiece and i remember being shocked that it wasn't shot on green screen it had to be rotoed because it's one of those intricate pieces of uh gorgeous costume design that i'm referring to but it's basically like kind of wicker work like you could see through it oh the and, compositors uh have uh scars that have yet healed from that, uh, that I, I was, it was quite a monster to deal with yeah but it, this time around did you have the same deal that like i mean how much yeah. were you shooting on green and how much was it the design oh, it's not? even like in the um uh in the opening scene with the funeral there's lens yep. flares like the, she walks over like sun and like her hat like transitions from like blue screen to sky like yeah there's some really um nasty uh uh you know little you know it's 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 just at that point you know you kind of just like get the shot done creatively to broad strokes and then you just say all right now's the time to go in and just really work those edges frame to frame and go through there but yeah it's it's uh it was quite a challenge i i i'm kind of stunned that 
I thought about this a, a bunch when I saw that hat again. And I just thought like, I would just see any shot like that and go, that's just CG it. Like, honestly, like trying to, but I mean, you've got great reference in, in some respects, but the way the light wrap works around and the way it goes from solid to translucent, and then just basically kind of almost disappears with those backlits just seems optically miserable to throw at a comp team or a roto team. Yeah, that's pretty, yeah. It was it was basically brute force, you know. Really? Like there's times she's walking in front of a tree, so you have like leaves <laughs> going behind the wicker stuff, like that kind of thing. I mean, in those cases, we're like, oh, let's try to keep the trees so we don't have to, you know. Each shot was its own, its own puzzle. Yeah, yeah. Regard, and there was a there was a joke, you know. I would joke on set on the first movie that oh, she's wearing her CG hat, <laughs> thinking thinking that we would have to replace it, you know, in in every shot, and we didn't. And, you know, honestly, I think visually it's better that we did it the way we did. Like the, the Yeah, I mean, it looks real it. and it has that, yeah. you know, gorgeous quality about it. I just felt really sorry for the guys that were having to, or the women that were having to deal with it because yeah. it, it is just tricky beyond belief. And also it's so important, right? It's such yeah. a, an extension of her authority that it's not like your eye doesn't go to it. Right, for sure. If I was to look at um, the city from a kind of just a town planning point of view, um, Craig, is this like pretty much the same city with a couple of years of, you know, canon difference? Or you were said earlier that there were different parts of the city we were seeing, but like how much were you conscious of literally kind of, oh, well, those buildings were there in the first film, so you better make sure that they're there exactly in the same place in the second well, there was a fair bit of, a, of that. And, you know, some of that was just necessity of, um, you know, we had the asset. And so the, the beginning stages was uh, was bringing the asset back back online, sharing that out with to Previs so that Previs could basically have an accurate um, uh, building layout to, to work with. Um, and then, honestly, on our side, we wanted to replace as little as possible. Um, you know, let's let's use what we built was our our standard. And so then it became, you know, there were three unique new districts that needed to go in. Um, and they were called North Triangle, which is where the funeral happens and the, the initial flood um, uh, with the Koye. And there's Little River Town, which is uh, where we first see um, uh, Namor come out of the water uh, in the city. Um, and the, the whole it's kind markets. of like a port feel to it, right? Port, yeah, port sort of market. It, yeah, yeah. It's, it's a, it's a, it's a, you know, uh, it's a mini port with with street market, you know, booths around it. Yep. Um, um, and then there is uh, what was the third one called? Stepsisters, which is basically just this stepped layered uh, street um, street setup, which um, is where the bus. Uh, gets caught up in the uh, in the flood and needs to be saved by Sherry. So those needed to be kind of wedged into an existing city layout, and that was that was quite a quite a design thing. But you know, uh, Hannah and the art department had given us kind of a pretty good guideline with um, uh, Unreal files where they had tried to work it out. You know, at least in broad strokes um, in three D. And then beyond that, it was a matter of, you know, 
for the big wide uh, city shots where he's fighting, there is a bit of kind of redesigning building backings per shot, um, just so that graphically, uh, you know, it works per shot and it's not competing with him. And there's, you know, there's, there's enough, uh, uh, kind of freedom there in our layout to do some of that for those shots. But was the cinematography, the, like the virtual cinematography, then worked out by that previous team in Unreal, or was that really just handed over to you as a guide only, and you really started over? Yeah, that's it's a guide, and that's more kind of Matt. Matt, you can probably talk more to that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's a guide. We would the layout team would match the I guess the the plates or the renders we would get from previs, just as a first pass. Or sometimes we would just look at it as a base starting point to to start a camera work and shot design with. So. Yeah, we didn't actually work with any of the specific files from them. Because you have Matt, control of the blocking, and the blocking is so important to just the, it's not just the composition of the shot, but kind of like how it's flowing across the edits and stuff. Did you sort of find yourself going back and like you could obviously could, being you guys, move a building yeah. if you needed to? Did that happen or was it more like you're working inside the constraints of the architectural environment you primarily had? Yeah, we worked within those constraints. Yeah, the gen team was was working uh, parallel to us. So we just had to ensure we always had the, the latest and greatest from, from the environment team in our scene so we knew what we could avoid and navigate around. Yeah, I mean, on occasion, maybe uh, our, you know, Ryan might point out that, oh, maybe, maybe this building could be slightly changed and then we can then pipe that back down to the environment team to change. But generally, we would uh, try to stay true to what they're building. I always find it interesting how well you manage to keep me kind of spatially aware of what's going on in an action sequence, because I really disconnect from a film. If I just lose track of what's going on, I'm like, okay, I'll kind of lean back into it once they stop moving. <laughs> not, not because I'm motion sickness, right. But because I, it's just too confusing and it becomes just like visual clutter and you didn't do that. And, uh, that choreography, that it's a combination of blocking and virtual cinematography is kind of, I don't know if you just like to comment on that, but it seems like a real art. It, it is. I mean, the previous team did a fantastic job, um, you know, to start with. So we just kind of uh, built upon that. I think a lot of it was we had to ensure things weren't moving too fast. There were times where early on we were taking some of the vehicles and getting them from A to B a little bit too fast. And then um, Jeff, the VFX uh, client side suit would tell us to rein it back a little bit just to be true to, you know, real world speeds that these things can move. So with everything, you know, not moving, you know, too quickly, and then we could design a camera that wasn't this, wasn't too fast either. And then you can, you know, your eye could trace all these things, um, you know, across the shot. Um, because you know things were were inherently more physically real, so yeah. I mean, thing I, part of that is oh, go ahead, Dave. No, I was sorry, I was just, sorry to interrupt you, Matt. The only thing I was going to add is I think the palace served as a very good anchor as well because the palace yeah. is a very um, unique kind of silhouette and a unique look to the rest of the city. The rest of the city high rises can kind of blend, and you can kind of you know get lost in that. But if you, as you watch the sequence, a good amount of the aerial combat is woven around that. So I think as you, you know, that helps with the orientation of like, okay, we just looked at the palace this way. Now we're looking over here and we're over the shoulder of him and then back again and what have you. And David, if I'm not mistaken, that's also our main audience perspective of inside to out. Do you know what I mean? Like a lot of the outside shots yeah. are outside, but that's where we really get a spatial relationship between what's happening to our heroes inside and their oh, view it's a, it's out It's a huge story. It. Yeah, a huge story point as well, right? Because the whole yeah. thing is Namor is trying to get there 
And then you have a Ramonda uh, at the window of the palace looking out, you know, so it definitely, it, it, it serves, you know, beyond just being a backdrop, a uh, recognizable backdrop, it's it, story point wise, it's, it's big as far. And, and similarly, the, uh, the emergency vehicles all fly away from that land, the landing pads are on the base of that as well. So all the, that little bit um, down there happens at the palace as well. So while we're on you, David, one of the things I wanted to ask about is the sequence where um, we go to the, I'm going to say netherworld or whatever, uh, uh, and find Killmonger. That sequence had to be another one of these occasions of it needed to be different from what we'd seen in the first film, but incredibly visually uh, relevant to what we'd seen in the first film. It's obviously a different sequence, different location it goes to, but the audience has to fully get those as being the same experience. I don't know if you wanted to talk to that, but it, I mean, obviously kind of a super important point in the, in the uh, story. Yeah. I think camera work wise, you know, I tip my, tip my hat to the, you know, the team and, and the, the opening shot with Shuri, the work that Jeff and Craig all did with the planning of, of her waking up in the water and then climbing out of the water and becoming dry as she comes out of the water. And then you're kind of, the nice thing is, you, you go on a ride with Shuri as she turns to look out the window to see the Aurora, which is really, that's the visual cue, right? Because that's what we associate. Last time we were out in the plains with the tree, with the Panthers in the tree, but it was the sky was alive with these magentas and purples and, and, and those colors. So that's the first time you're like, wait a second. Okay. She's here. Uh, you know, we, we carried over some of the damage to the throne room, you know, that had happened just previously. Um, you know, with the window blowing out and the death of the, the queen and what have you, but um, really it was, it was kind of trying to find the balance of what worked for matching the lighting of the, the performers in the, in the, the central throne area, but at the same time, like being mindful of the fires coming later and just trying to get a nice dramatic um, moody scene, you know, and again, riffing off of, of what uh, autumn lit on the day and trying to recreate that but uh but yeah no it's um i think ultimately to, to answer your question it's it's that that trip you take with shuri as she turns and then you're over the shoulder as she's just looking out and she sees you have that just the view of looking at the aurora and then from there you're like oh i know where i'm at i gotta say this was the other wet slash dry sequence that I was alluding to earlier, because you got to tell me like either the water was CG in that or her clothes were CG, but you don't get out of water and get that dry that quickly. I don't know, Craig, if that's down to you or to David, but like, I mean, it, you know, it's, it's an ethereal sequence, right? It's not a problem. It's not a continuity problem, but I was in the cinema going, hang on a second. Yeah. <laughs> Wait, I mean, that's just what I was meant to do, right? I was meant to be like, so it was appropriate, but I was like, so put me out of my misery. How'd you do it? Uh, I mean, basically, it's two plates. I mean, that's the trick. It's not. Uh, it's not one take of her, but uh, it's two plates stitched together. But I'll let Craig go on as far as the planning of that shoot because it was. It's what yeah, made it. Work. It's it. You know, like like Dave says, it's it's a split there, and it was it was um, you know it was one of the shots that we started talking about early on um, and planning out. And Jeff did a great job of of working with the. Um, you know, the, the, the set designers and the special effects crew. And, but, but basically to answer your question uh, on the B side, there's, there's no water. That's all CG water. So she is, she is dry on that whole entire B side and that's simulated water that she's coming through that she interacts with, um, with dry clothing. Yeah. 
Well, it works uh, works incredibly uh, effectively. Oh, and I, I also skipped over uh, when I was talking about the city and that relationship between the previous and now, the vehicles in the city, or rather the ships and stuff, which obviously are in that big middle uh, fight sequence as well. But we see a bunch of them. It's not like we haven't seen uh, Wakanda tech before, but did that, uh, tra- were they basically newer versions of the vehicles or were they completely... Um, Reference from the first. Yeah, so the um, there's the, the main vehicles, the, the what are called the Dragon Flyers and the Talon Fighter. Uh, those are um, borrowed from the first movie, uh, as far as well as the Royal Talon Fighter, which is what the Queen rides around in. Um, those are all from the first movie, and I don't believe, other than some weapons stuff and some detail around the cockpit, that they are. Uh, modified. Uh, and then the new ship that's brought in um, is the Scarab Beetle, which is the rescue ship um, that is is more or less the flying brick uh, we refer to as, um, but that's brand new to the story. So also yeah. isn't, um, wasn't Shuri and what was the name of it? The oh, Shuri yeah. On? You're right. Uh, oh my God. Sunburn. 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 Thank right. you. Yep. Yes. Shuri's, Shuri's personal ship yeah uh, is new to this and you know that is quite a unique uh, problem to solve in itself um just the the nature of it wanting to be again kind of this hummingbird um feel uh went through some rounds of of what the basically the effects aspects of it would be to um to give it the sense of propulsion and understanding of where the propulsion's from and, and the dynamics of it. And I, I will say in this movie, um, it was a real uh, desire of Ryan's to dial back on all the effectsy uh, things that that had shown up in the, you know, even in just the first movie, like any of the, the kind of colored thrusters, the, the visible, thruster effects or lighting stuff, especially in daytime, you know, they, we really um, uh, were directed to kind of pull that back to be um, a little less, less fantastic. Yeah. You described it, didn't you, as being a film about relationships, not about, uh, you know, tech per se, obviously you had a lot of visual effects in it and there's no uh, walking away from that in any way, shape or form, but yeah, it was, we were, I think he said we were probably as an audience going to be more interested in the conversations than, than almost anything else. So then you had to provide the stage for those conversations and the, uh, right. the ability for us to believe them. But in the, uh, the breakdown of the film, how many kind of shots overall did you guys end up kind of delivering? And because um, you, you notionally were meant to have finished the film in what, July 22, but it meant to November. But had you actually finished in July 22 and you just sat on the shelf or what was the story? No, 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 no. <laughs> we were working um, on it days before. <laughs> yeah. That's right. Yes, it bled on for a very long time. Um, we we finished, I believe it was just over 500 shots. Yeah, I think so. And that extra time that came, which I understood was just a sequencing of dominoes from various COVID shuffling of the, the decks for cinema release, that bought you extra time to do stuff or it, it just meant that your own schedule moved back. I was wondering if you just had longer to do your work or not. Oddly, seemingly, we had less time. Um, How is that possible? You know, I, I think 
you know, and I'm not I'm not familiar with exactly um, all the motivations of 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 the move, but um, you know, certainly, I think it the the shoot got pushed, and then the shoot got delayed in the middle of it um, when Letitia got hurt. Um, and, and it's a long film, right? It's 161 minutes or whatever. So it's there's it is, a lot of it. Yeah. 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 But by the time we finished shooting, um, like it was already a short post schedule, even okay. even to November. Um, and then uh, the complexities of of honestly the storytelling aspects of it, you know, meant that the getting the edit and the turnovers um structured and and to us uh actually meant that we got shots quite late and didn't have you know it, it was not a luxurious uh end of the show let's put it that yeah <laughs> i'm not going to ask you that hectic question of what was your favorite effect shot but i was wondering was there any shots that took a really long time and ended up actually like going down to the wire because they were taking so long and if so why was that because sometimes that's a creative thing sometimes it's just a technical thing you can't seem to crack yeah, it's a good question. Honestly, like there, um, so much of this came down to the last minute that um, you know, just the stacking of of these complex scenes and shots um, to get it all the way through the the various departments in the pipe. Um, you know, everything. You know, in as as things do, uh, kind of fell through the you know came through the the various departments. Um, in more or less kind of at the last minute to where you know a lot of these shots linearly take a very long time you know there, there's a lot of unique shots in this movie yes. at least in our work yeah right there's not a lot of of just churn you know it's every fight um shot is is different and has unique problems you know uh, every every place you look in the city you know, has has specific pipeline and you know uh, artist issues that need to be dealt with. So, from a technical point of view, is the fluid sim stuff still like going to make whatever fluid sim shots longer inherently, or is the tech caught up that the sims aren't like slowing you down as much as they used to back in the day? Well, it's you know, and Dave, you can mm. chime in here too. But like to me like I used to do water work. I, you know, I was an effects artist and it's not like the, and I, I find the same things with renders, right. Where um, it's not that they take less time. It's that we visually get more complex, right. It's um, we choose to turn on more switches and, you know, um, uh, do more complex stuff and cheat less than we used to. Um, it still is mind-numbingly long process that sometimes, you know, for some of the shots of, of the water breaking through the window into the tribal council room, you know, we were sitting for four days waiting to see something. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, that, that would get through sim and render. Just the, all the complexities of uh, yeah, and like I say, you know, you turn on all the bells and whistles, and and in the past, you know, uh, either you couldn't, 
and so there was a lot of visual cheating um and and you know a lot of uh hand waving you know oh let's put a flare over here because you don't want to see that um and now it's you you kind of you have the luxury of being able to do it properly but not quickly but matt where's the chicken and egg in this because you know like you want to know where the water is and what it's looking like to do the blocking to do your animation and on the same token all of those things depend on what's going on with your animation right yeah so specifically the bus sequence where they get rescued um, the effects department established the speed uh, had run some sims early on for us to use as essentially a height um, to know where the height is and to, to match the speed. We wanted to move that bus through the water accurately so it wasn't you know going faster than the water or or too slow. So we, they just provide us provided us like a really proxy um, you know geo plane for us to use. Um, but yeah, we worked heavily uh, and very closely with the effects department back and forth. Sometimes we would establish speeds and they would start running tests early on, or they had already been running tests that we would then pick up um, to put into our, our scenes to get going. So it was yeah, a really close uh, relationship. And it would, Craig, it would flow back and back and forth, right? So like we, yeah. Would, yeah. we would do initial like uh, flood sims and then we'd that would be passed over to, to, to Matt and, you know, the digital doubles would be put in it and the debris, and then that would be passed back to effects to do splashes and secondary sims that they get included with the primary ones. Yeah. I mean, you really need that iterative process because you can't have one hand tied behind your back by the restrictions placed on your own team effectively, if it's a, it's a linear process. Hey, um, Craig, maybe you can just finish up by running us through, like, was this based out of the Presidio? Was it spread across your mini now? uh you know teams around the world it was it was primarily uh vancouver san francisco team um and and heavier vancouver uh side of things i would i would say um but i mean to add to that ilm at this point is still what's the official terminology uh remote first or i think is our official tagline but um still primarily working remotely and what we found over the pandemic is especially between our two sites because uh, matt and i are both in vancouver um that we're in the same time zone that it's really gotten to be this awesome blended team where i mean it's it's we joke and it's not to imply that we don't know our artists that well, but like there's times like late in a show you find out like, Oh, that person's in San Francisco. I thought they were in Vancouver. Like, cause you know, you can't reckon just, you just see walls behind people and you, know, you just don't know. But like the teams were really, you know, I'd have people from San Francisco on my team. Craig would have people from Vancouver on his team, you know? Uh, so it's really completely. Does that give you more flexibility in picking people that you know in your own, you know, inside the company and saying, oh, this guy is just awesome at this thing and I can get him on the team because I don't really care where he's sitting? Absolutely. It becomes kind of, um, I call it kickball uh, team building, right? You know, like each team takes a turn picking someone kind of thing, <laughs> you know, that they go through, but you know, that you can sit now, there. Hang on, is this between you and Craig or is this between you <laughs> and some yeah, other right. Marvel film? <laughs> yeah, yeah, a, a little bit. But no, the yeah. teams as well, like, you know, there was a compositing supervisor that worked for me and a compositing supervisor that worked for Craig. And then, you know, you try to balance the teams. And then moreover, like, you can really dynamically flex and move to the demands of the show, you know, like they're just the naturally right. Certain things beat a trailer, be it, Oh, the sequence is being held up by net. It changes. So people are available. Then like some, you know, people could kind of flow over to like help a different team and kind of flow back. So you can really make these 
very fluid kind of motions uh to to balance it all out so um so yeah it's it's again we just take advantage that we're in the this i mean we have wonderful working relationships with all of our multiple sites it's just uh the sheer time zone if it were like a sydney you know for example just don't make that nearly as fluid you know just because uh you know there is no time zone that works between Sydney, London, and San Fran. Trust me, I've tried. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly, <laughs> exactly. Uh, well, look, thanks so much for taking us through the film. I, I think it's uh, really nice to have such a, you know, kind of worthwhile um, emotional subtext to a film, and it just resonated. Uh, obviously, it's resonated with audiences. It's done very well at the box office. But just, it was just so nice to see that reflected in Costumes, art direction, and of course the visuals that uh, that ILM provided. And uh, Wakanda is, you know, it's like a bit of a special film in many respects. I think it's the thirtieth Marvel film. I mean, I'm wrong on that, but anyway, it certainly I felt so, like a special. Yeah. So thanks yeah. so much, guys, for taking time to talk to us. Really appreciate it. Of, of course, of course. Well, thank you guys for taking time to chat with us and share some of the details of the work that ILM did on the film. I really enjoyed a lot of the technical stuff, but also, I guess, maybe my background as a compositor, I really enjoyed hearing some entails from the trenches, so to speak, of the really painstaking compositing work that was done to integrate everything in the shot and really have an appreciation now, um, hearing some about some of that work, um, seeing the images on the big screen and how beautiful they are. Um, how that work really paid dividend in the end. So really kudos to all the work done by the composite and of course everyone else on the film. Well, that's it for this episode. Thank you so much for taking time to listen to the FX podcast. For Mike Seymour, I'm John Montgomery. Thanks for listening. Please let us know if you have any suggestions for stories or future podcasts. You can reach us by clicking the Contact Us link at the top of the homepage. This podcast is copyright FX Guide LLC. Broadcast or redistribution is prohibited without the expressed written consent of FX Guide.